Turn with me to John chapter 12, the Gospel of John chapter 12, the Gospel of John chapter 12, we'll be looking at verses 42 through 50, confessing Christ, John 12 verses 42 through 50, give attention to God's holy word. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. They loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I, did not come to, uh, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come now to the preaching of your word and we ask that you would shine the light of your countenance upon us, even as we prayed in Psalm 80, and revive us. Revive us that we might call upon your name and dwell in the light of your glory forever. And we ask you to do all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, when I was in high school, I had a Muslim friend. And we were on the football team together. Uh, We played the same position, and so we interacted a lot on the football team. This young man was a Muslim, as I mentioned. And one day he comes up to me and he says, Hey, Benny. Uh, repeat after me. And so he, he walks me through this Arabic, this Arabic phrase. I didn't know what I was saying. I was just playing along with him. And he, we go through this whole thing, and, and he says, okay, great, now you're a Muslim. What, what he had had me go through is basically the, the Muslim confession of faith, that there is one God and Muhammad is his prophet, etc., etc., that whole thing. And so he's like, ha, I got you. Now you're a Muslim. And I was like, okay, ha, ha, very funny. See, we, we laugh at that anecdote. We know that it's, it doesn't really stick that way because as I was saying the words, I had no idea what I was saying. It was in Arabic. I don't understand that language. But even at a deeper level, in my heart, th- there was no faith. I, 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 at the time, was not a Christian, but I was certainly not a Muslim. I wasn't following Muhammad. And so my heart did not align with my mouth. And so what I said with my mouth didn't count as they say. Well, in the Christian church, we sometimes reverse that order. We would acknowledge that if you say something with your mouth, it doesn't matter what's in your heart. If the heart is not with what you say, it doesn't count. But sometimes we get things backward. We sometimes think and say to ourselves, as long as it's in your heart, as long as you believe, it doesn't matter what you say outwardly. 
This has been a long-standing problem in the Christian church. In fact, it was a major controversy in the ancient church. During one of the Roman persecutions, what they would force Christians to do is they would round them up, and they would set up an icon or a statue of the emperor, and under threat of death, they would tell the Christians, we will let you go if you offer just a little bit of incense to the emperor, just a pinch of incense. That was an act of worship. That was confessing that the emperor was a god. And there were many Christians who cracked under that kind of pressure. I think when we look at those stories, we need to be very gracious to our brothers and sisters. None of us have faced Roman torture. And so it's kind of impossible for us to tell what we would do in that same situation. But this happened in the church, and it created a very big controversy. What, what do you do with these people who repent and want to come back into the church? They denied Christ. They worshipped a Roman emperor. There was one group of the church that said, don't let them back in. They've completely abandoned the faith. There's no hope for them. Of course, the better part of the church, the, the part of the church that we come from, said there is hope of repentance. If, if people do truly repent in their heart, there is a way for them to show that. If their heart is truly changed, they can confess and come back into the fold. And so this problem of belief in the heart and outward confession has been a problem in the church for a long time. In our day, the problem shows itself this way. In the public square, what is the general tone of our society? The general tone of our society is that the Muslims can do whatever the Muslims want to do. The, the sodomites can do whatever the sodomites want to do. The, 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 the fill in the blank, whichever religious commitment you have, you can do whatever you want to do in the public square except you Christians. You Christians need to keep your religion private. You can believe in your heart, but don't you dare confess publicly. And so this is now a problem in our day as well. Furthermore, in our personal lives, in our interactions, sometimes we can fall into the trap of thinking, as long as I believe in my heart, it doesn't matter what I say in my family, in my workplace, in my school. But what we're going to learn in this passage, what we're going to see, is that faith in the heart, if the heart really does have faith, it produces a confession with the mouth unto the praise of the Father. Faith in the heart produces a confession with the mouth unto the praise of the Father. There's, there's two things that we're going to see here. One is a partial faith, verses 42 and 43. And verses 44 through 50 is an exhortation to a complete faith. Verses 42 and 43 is a partial faith. And verses 44 through 50, an exhortation to a complete faith. Now, it may sound odd for me to call it a partial and a complete faith, but, but I want you to recognize, though, that if you have true faith in the heart, and, and those of you that do will immediately recognize this illustration, Th those that have true faith, that God has changed your heart, your heart is like a wineskin with new wine in it. 
You know what happens with a wineskin and you put new wine into the wineskin? The wine is still active. The, the yeast is still cooking. And when that wine is in the wineskin, the wineskin begins to expand. And the, the wine wants to express itself. It wants to come out. That's what the work of God is in the heart of man. When he puts true faith in the heart, it will eventually come out. It has to come out. Just like it was with the prophets when the Lord says, is not my word a fire in the bones seeking an outlet? Likewise, faith in the Christian heart is like new wine in wineskins. It has to come out. And so we begin by looking at a partial faith. I call this a partial faith because it's not certain at this point whether or not this faith is true. It's only partial. This could be true saving faith on the part of these Jews, or it could be a false faith. We don't know. The language that Paul, uh, John uses is the same language he uses throughout this gospel for believing unto salvation. He says, nevertheless, among the rulers, many believed in him. Many had an internal faith. They were persuaded by the miracles and the teachings of Christ, and they believed in him in the heart. But this faith is only a partial faith. Notice what he says next. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. Now remember who the Pharisees were in first century Israel. The Pharisees were a religious party. The Pharisees were not necessarily priests. They were a, call it a political party, but they had a religious identity. You could be a priest and be a Pharisee. Or you could just be a regular Jew and still be a Pharisee. The thing that distinguished the Pharisees is that they were convinced what Israel should do is follow the law of Moses to the letter. They wanted to work out their own righteousness through a rigorous obedience to the law. In many ways, what the Pharisees began is what Judaism has become today. The Pharisees were this kind of religious party, and they were convinced that what Moses and all the prophets wanted Israel to do was to obey the law of Moses in exhaustive detail and earn their own righteousness. Now, of course, when Christ and the forerunner John the Baptist come on the scene, they have a very different message for the Pharisees, don't they? When John is performing his baptism of repentance, the Pharisees and many from Jerusalem came to him, and John the Baptist opens up and says, Brood of vipers, who convinced you to flee from the wrath to come? Why are you here? Bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. Several other parables throughout the Gospels show that Christ, in his preaching to the Pharisees, was extremely offensive to the Pharisees. It was extremely offensive to them because of their sense of self-righteousness. You remember the parable in Luke of the older son and the younger son. The older son was there, and the prodigal son comes to the father and says, give me my inheritance, I want to leave. The son takes his inheritance, leaves, and spends it in Vegas. Whatever happens in Vegas stayed in Vegas, but thankfully the son did not stay in Vegas. He repents and returns to the father, and the father is overjoyed, throws him a huge feast, says, my son who was dead is alive. Well, the older brother was furious. I have been here the whole time, and you've never done this for me. 
Christ told that parable against the Pharisees. Their self-righteousness prevented them from seeing their need of the mercy of God. And so these rulers who believe in Christ, they didn't want to confess Christ because of the Pharisees. Now notice why. They, they, uh, they did not confess Him lest they should be put out of the synagogue. What John describes here at the end of verse 42 is their own rationalization of why they're not confessing Christ. You see, these rulers, probably civil rulers, most likely religious rulers, in, in the organization of, of first century Israel, you would have rulers of synagogues, you would have priests, you would have guards of the temple, you have all these different offices. These rulers didn't want to confess Christ because they told themselves, well, we don't want to be put out of the synagogue. If, if we get put out of the synagogue, we'll lose our influence. If, if we get put out of the synagogue, we're going to lose our place in this Jewish community. We don't want that to happen. So we're not going to confess Christ because it's more important for us to remain in the synagogue. Now, at one level, this concern is legitimate. We, we've already read in John chapter 9. Turn back, to me, turn back with me in John chapter 9. John chapter 9 is the chapter of the blind man. <clears throat> the blind man is healed. Notice what he says in 9.13. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. The story goes on. The Pharisees said all these different things about him. Skipping down to the end of verse uh, uh, to verse 34. After all this interview with the blind man, they answered him, you were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. They kicked him out of the synagogue. They excommunicated him. So at one level, this concern of the rulers is legitimate. This has already happened once, at least. And when you're kicked out of the synagogue like this, you do lose a lot of connections. You lose a lot of family connections. You lose a lot of business connections. You basically become a leper to the first century Jews. Perhaps you've heard stories of Muslim converts. There, there's many of them. Muslims convert. Their entire family is cut off from them. Their father wants nothing to do with them. And in some cases, they get a price on their head. They become a target for assassins. So to be put out was a serious concern. On the other hand... This concern is a rationalization, as I said. That's what John's going to say in the very next verse. You see, to themselves, they're saying, we don't want to be kicked out of the synagogue because we're going to lose all of these things. And then John gives the deeper reason for why they're doing this. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. You see, ultimately, what keeps us from confessing Christ, what kept these rulers of the synagogues, or of the civil magistrate, whatever it was, what kept these rulers from confessing Christ is that they loved the praise of men instead of the praise of God. They didn't want to risk a bad reputation in the eyes of men. And they would have gotten a bad reputation. All of those who confessed Christ were kicked out of the synagogue like the blind man. Christ himself is about to be excommunicated 
from humanity on the cross. And it's all at the hands of the Pharisees. And so John says they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. So we need to ask ourselves in our lives as Christians, there will be many opportunities for you to confess Christ, to confess your faith in Christ. It may be a chance for you to share the gospel with a family member or perhaps with a co-worker. Or it may be a very simple act of not laughing at an off-color joke, not participating in the worldliness around you. All of these are ways that we confess Christ in the world around us. And the times that we have given in, the, the times that we have failed to confess Christ is because the love of men, the love of the praise of men, was prominent in our hearts rather than the praise of God. I'll tell you an example from my own life, as I've mentioned before, and some of you will appreciate me mentioning this again. I used to work as a land surveyor. And as, when I worked as a land surveyor, you know, there were, there were other Christians there, not many, but there were a bunch of worldly guys. There were many times I had to either repent later on or, or really fight the temptation to go along with the guys, laughing at dirty jokes, looking at pictures no one should be looking at. This is what happens in a blue-collar job, at least at that job, that's what happened. And I can know that as I look back on those instances, when I decided to go with the crowd, I wanted to be thought well of by them. I wanted them to think of me as one of the guys. I loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. There were other times that God strengthened me to resist the temptation. And I can say when I look back on those times, perhaps some of you have had these experiences as well. When you do what is right, when you confess Christ before men by living righteously, you experience the praise of God. You know what the praise of God is? A clean conscience. Peace in the midst of the circumstance. Because you have done right, there is no reason to be afraid. And so John tells us many rulers believed in him, but they did not confess him, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. I want to encourage you, just practically, as, as we deal with these things and as we try to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever you do in your life, don't do it to satisfy men. Now, it could be a good thing that you're doing. You could be serving a family member. You could be helping a neighbor. You, you could be doing any number of good things. But what we have to start doing is, is weaning ourselves off of the praise of men. You know, Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ speak about being generous in giving and expecting nothing in return. That's how we should be in our service to one another. Giving of ourselves, serving, expecting no compliments, expecting no thank yous, expecting nothing in return. That's one way that we wean ourselves off of the praise of men. But also for the younger generation, turn down the social media. The, the social media uh, exacerbates this problem because everything that happens on social media is done for the praise of men. It's, it's part of the system. It's, it's part of the way that it's set up. It's set up to exaggerate 
the praise that men give you. So we need to wean ourselves off of these things, and we also need to wean ourselves onto the praise of God, seeking a clear conscience before him. And so, this is why these rulers did not confess him. Well, Christ then now goes into an exhortation to complete their faith. Now, he's going to use the same language of believe throughout this, this section that we're going to look at, but keep in mind the context. The Pharisees, these rulers, believe, but they don't confess. And what Christ is exhorting them to is, you believe, now confess with the heart. Uh, confess with the mouth. Confess outwardly that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, because the way that Christ puts it, if you don't confess, you don't really believe. Christ says in another place in one of the Gospels, he who confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father. But he who is ashamed of me before men, I will be ashamed of him before my Father. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And so Christ now gives an exhortation for us to confess the Lord Jesus Christ, and he does it in three ways. First, He does it because he is the image of the Father. Look at what he says in verses 44 through 45, uh, 46. Then Jesus cried out and said, now notice at the first, uh, just at at the outset here, Christ is crying out to these men. In the context of John's gospel, this is the last thing he will say publicly before the crucifixion. The rest of what's going to happen is going to happen between him and the disciples, the upper room discourse, and then Christ is taken off to the cross. This is the last thing he says in public to the nation. And he says it crying out to them, believe in me, confess in me, and be saved. He says, he who believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me, sees him who sent me. The first thing that Christ uses to exhort them to confess him is that Jesus Christ is uniquely the image of the Father. That's why he says, when you believe in me, you're not believing in me. Well, what does he mean here? He means that believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not believing in a mere man. You're not believing in a mere prophet. You're not believing in a religious teacher on the same level as Muhammad, Buddha, and Joseph Smith. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not really trusting in a man, you're trusting in the one who sent him. Now he's going to explain why that is later on, but the point he's making is that I have not come under my own authority. I am not simply a religious teacher, I am the one who's been sent from the Father. I'm the only one who's been sent from the Father. He goes on and explains this further. He who sees me sees him who sent me. This is a description of Christ as the image of the Father. Paul expands on this in Colossians chapter 1. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, Paul writes... He is the image of the invisible God. 
Now, who is Paul talking about? He's talking about the incarnate Christ. Notice what he says in verse 14. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So Paul is speaking about the incarnate Christ, and he says that this one is the image of the invisible God. The image refers to two things. First, Christ is the new Adam. When Adam was made, it says that he made him in the image of God and after the likeness of God. Adam, in his innocence, was the image of God, but Adam fell. He fell into sin and he lost the image of God, at least the particular image of God of knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Well, what Paul is saying here is that Christ, as the image of the invisible God, is the second Adam. He's the one that restores humanity. But even more so, especially in Colossians and in John chapter 12, when uh, Christ says that he who sees me sees him who sent me, he is saying that in understanding the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you understand the Father. The way to understand God is through the work of his Son. The one who sees Christ sees the one who sent him. And Christ uses this as an exhortation to believe in him. Now let me make, uh, and then in verse 46 he says, I have come as a light into the world. Whoever believes in me shall not abide in darkness. We've been seeing this throughout John chapter 12. Christ is the light of the glory of God. Now this may seem as uh, a bit mundane to us. We're Christians. I hope all of us are confessing Christians here. And we hear this idea of Christ being the light of the world. He who sees Christ sees the Father who sent him. The magnitude of this truth is sometimes lost on us, though. As Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, God is invisible. God cannot be seen. Even more so, because God is so far above our comprehension... He's so far above our sight, we don't even have language to describe him. God is so far beyond our comprehension, we can't see him, we can't know him, we cannot reach him. But in the person of Christ, God makes himself known to us. He makes himself known to us in the only way that he can be known through the Lord Jesus Christ. He who sees me sees him who sent me. Matthew chapter 11, Christ expounds on this idea and he says, no one knows the Father except the Son and he to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And so the first thing that Christ uses to exhort us to confess the Lord Jesus Christ and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is that it is only through the Lord Jesus Christ that you can know God. It's only through Him. There is no other way to know the Father. There's no other way to know the living and true God. Every other religion is vain, darkness, vanity. But the Lord Jesus Christ is the revelation of the Father. Believe in Him. Confess Him. Confess Him in your workplace. Confess Him in your family. Confess Him wherever you find yourself because He is the image of the Father. 
Not only does he exhort us with his unique relationship to the Father as the image of the Father, but he is also the apostle of the Father. Of course, you know what the word apostle means. Apostle is somebody who is sent as an official representative. This language is used in Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not often used of Jesus. When we hear the word apostle, we think of the twelve. But Christ is the capital A apostle. Hebrews 3.1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. Well, in John chapter 12, Christ says, I'm not only the image, I'm also the apostle of the Father. Now, an apostle's job is to represent the one that sent him by delivering his message. An apostle is sent to deliver a message. That's what Christ now comes to in verse 47. He says, if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Very interesting, the humility of Christ here. He comes and he says, I've spoken the word of God to you. And if anybody hears my words and rejects it, I'm not going to judge you. The word itself will judge you. The word that I was commanded to speak by the one who sent me, uh, uh, anyone who hears my word will judge him at the last day. This is the role of an apostle. This is also another reason to confess the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I mentioned my Muslim friend, and I don't know if he's still a Muslim. He, He might be. There's a lot of Muslims in the world. One of the things that the Muslims believe in is that Allah is, uh, that Allah sent Muhammad as his prophet. And if you're going to be a true believer in God, you have to believe the words of Muhammad. But you see, here's how you know that Muhammad himself didn't have this kind of confidence. That Muhammad was not a true apostle from God. Because the way that Muhammad spread his religion was not through the cross, It was through the sword. The way that Muhammad got his initial converts was through forcing them to do what my friend in high school tricked me to do at the end of a sword and said, now you're a Muslim. You see, if the word really does come from God, if somebody really is a representative of God, they don't need to defend themselves. The word itself will defend them. The word itself will judge those who reject it. That's what Christ is saying here. That the words I've given to you are not mine. They are the words of the Father. And if you reject them, you will be judged by them. Here again is another exhortation for us to confess the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you ever doubt the Word of God? Do you have questions? Does it really mean what it says? Are God's promises really true? You know, if I sin, is God really going to judge me? If, if my friends don't believe in the Lord Jesus, are they really going to go to hell? You know, sometimes these questions can enter our minds, especially if we're in the position of the rulers. We believe in our hearts, 
But because we love the praise of men and not the praise of God, we can fail to confess him. Well, Christ reminds us here he's the image of the Father, he's the apostle of the Father, and for these reasons we should confess him. But not only that, we are exhorted to confess Christ before men because he's the image, he's the apostle, and this is how he himself lived and died. And that's what Christ goes into his own example in verses 49 through 50. He says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Now this is related to the, to the prior point about him being the apostle. He was sent with a command from the Father. But what I want you to notice, especially at this context in John's Gospel, what Christ is saying here is that he loves the praise of God more than the praise of men. He lived his whole life confessing the word of the Father that he was commanded to confess. Christ, in his heart, believed in the Father, and therefore he spoke of the Father. And Christ uses this last example to exhort us to follow in his example. You see, brothers and sisters, when Christ was given a command from the Father, he didn't hide it in his heart. He didn't, as he'll say later on during his trial, when they come to the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, everything I have taught has been out in the open. I didn't do anything in a corner. So why are you coming to me now in the middle of the night in private? Christ taught everything his Father commanded him to do, and it's going to cost Christ his life. He's going to be crucified for the things that he taught. Christ uses this as an exhortation to us to confess his name. The last thing that I'll say here about this, to exhort all of us to confess Christ wherever we may be, it's a line from John Calvin. One of the things that Calvin said about a preacher or a teacher of the Word of God, but it applies to all Christians as well. If somebody's going to take up the Word of God and teach it to men, if somebody's going to claim the name of Christ, they need to be prepared to die for their doctrine. We don't, I don't think we often think about the, the urgency of the Christian life in that way. I think in our country, we've had Christianity for generations. We've had Christianity probably in our own families for generations. And so Christianity has become a comfortable thing for us. Up to this point, it has not cost us anything to confess Christ, except maybe a dirty look, except maybe a, a screed on social media. But the days are coming when it will cost you something to be a Christian. I've mentioned this before in this pulpit. We are entering into an age where the world and American society no longer respects Christianity. Which means we are all going to have to confess Christ. And in order to confess Christ, you have to ask yourself, do you love the praise of men or the praise of God? You see, the other side of Christ's warning here is that if you don't believe, the Word will judge you. But if you do believe, if you do confess Christ before men, He will confess you before the Father. 
when Christ comes in the glory of all of his angels and all of the nations are set before his throne and the books are opened and it's recorded that you confessed Christ, Christ will confess you before his Father and before the entire world. He's one of mine. She belongs to me. That's the reward that we're looking for. That's the reward that Christ was looking for and it led him to the cross. And so as the Lord Jesus Christ said, if anyone would be my disciple, let him follow me, deny himself, and take up his cross. Let us also do likewise as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and his exhortation to us to confess him before men. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to confess Christ before men by weaning us from the love of the praise of men and feeding us upon a love for the praise of God. We pray that you would open our minds more and more to understand how Christ is the image of the Father, the apostle of the Father, and to appreciate and follow the example of Christ as we confess him. And we pray, Lord, that you would do all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen.